Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Louise Palenker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. And this is a very special episode of MediaPath, and here's why. In 1951, at the age of 15, Bruce Bellant opened a stage door at Cyril's Nightclub in West Hollywood and came face-to-face with his musical hero, Harry Mills of the Mills Brothers. The encounter inspired Bruce to form his own harmony group, The Four Preps, while still in high school. Today, Bruce comes face-to-face face-to-Zoom face, that is, with John Mills of the Mills Brother, who toured with his father, original Mills Brother Donald Mills, for 15 years. Bruce has questions, and that full-circle moment is coming right up. But first, Fritz, what have you been watching this week? All right, well, I'm going to talk about Avatar 2, The Way of the Water. This won't be as long as the movie is. Thank the good Lord for that. (laughs) It's in theaters now. It's been 13 years since the first Avatar. In this one, the Earth is dying. Humans are looking to get out of Dodge and inhabit a healthier planet, so they pick Pandora, or Avatar Land. Under this renewed threat from humans, Jake Sully and his family seek refuge with another tribe, the Metkayina on Pandora, and hijinks and high-tech stuff ensue. Uh, There are three positive takeaways of this film from me. One, the idea of an uninvited military incursion into a foreign land, it kind of suggests Vietnam. Number two, there's a great environmental theme. One of the touching aspects of the story is belief that humans and animals have a spiritual connection. That really resonated with me. And number three, in the end, it's the children or the next generation that will ultimately save us from ourselves. It's stars, or these stars are unrecognizable avatars that are stars. Sam Worthington, Zoe Saldana, Sigourney Weaver, Kate Winslet. One reviewer made a comment that I agree with. It's more impressive as a technical achievement than in storytelling. But the technology is mind-blowing. Everyone is aware of how they create characters these days with motion capture. What is beyond amazing is the rest of the physical aspects of this movie. It's obviously CGI, but it's so flawless, you can't believe it's CGI. The vehicles they drive, the sea life, anything and everything man-made is digital creation. I had to go home and look up the making of Avatar videos on YouTube to see how it was done. Very impressive, but be prepared. It's over three hours long. Fortunately, the miracle of the planet Pandora is that even at three hours plus, you still don't have to use the bathroom a lot. So it's pretty good. I, I thought it was a technical achievement. But I felt like I was watching sort of a watered-down version of Gossip Girls. It was it, the the dialogue is about that intense. Oh wow! Okay, wow, that's a lot. That was a hybrid that I wasn't prepared for. Okay, <laughs> I am going to highly recommend my next guest needs no introduction with David Letterman, who recently took a circuitous route through Poland into Ukraine via planes and trains for a stirring personal and in-depth conversation with President Volodymyr Zelensky. For the sake of safety, the interview is conducted in front of a small audience on a subway platform deep below the city of Kiev. Letterman and Zelensky face each other, both wearing translator headsets, which they struggle to hear over the subway traffic, seeing in each other a fellow intelligent, insightful, thoughtful and engaged comedian whose lives have taken very different paths. The mutual respect is what is palpable. Letterman clearly admires Zelensky's courage and fortitude in this critical moment. Zelensky is grateful that Letterman has made the dangerous journey. The conversation took place before Zelensky traveled to D.C. and addressed Congress. The two men talk about purpose, 
history, family, and even shares some jokes, but the mood respects the circumstances and remains somber. If you have not yet sampled Dave's latest venture, my next guest, use the Zelensky episode as an entry point and then pick and choose what you like. Dave has spoken with, for example, Barack Obama, George Clooney, Billie Eilish, Jay-Z, Tina Fey, Ellen DeGeneres, and a bunch more. And his understanding of his guests is broadened by some of his familiar and delightful out-of-studio exploration that fans will find enjoyable and endearing. For example, he sneaks into Ellen's offices at Warner Brothers and helps her scare innocent staffers. The Letterman Fund here is fully intact, but the show gives him an opportunity to stretch himself further intellectually and offer us an example of how we can all spend our lives continuing to learn and grow. My next guest needs no introduction with Dave Letterman is on Netflix. And now, oh, did you have something to say about that? Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, I think one of Dave's endearing qualities, and it has nothing to do with his comedy, is his humanity. And the fun for me, it was a great interview. I mean, you know, the, the translation slows everything down so it's not as spontaneous. And when they had the air raid siren in the middle, it kind of took my concentration away yeah. from it. But it was Dave walking around um, uh, Kiev, sort of absorbing the devastation of war. And Dave's, you can tell, he really is a very sensitive person. I remember uh, after 9-11, his first night back, his monologue was so touching, and it became a viral moment, and you could see a little of that humanity in this, and I really liked it. I thought he was a great representative of the United States going over there, so I, I love this show. Yeah, it's really, I highly recommend. And uh, I think it's time for us to uh, introduce our guest. John H. Mills II has been singing since he was a baby. He joined the act with his father, original Mills brother Donald Mills, in 1982, continuing a tradition begun in 1922 by Harry, Herbert, Donald, and John Mills I as young children. The Mills brothers released records in every decade from the 20s into the 90s. Their hits include Paper Doll, Nevertheless, Till Then, Lazy River, Cab Driver, and the list just goes on and on and on. John Mills II performs Mills Brothers Classics today with Randy Taylor, and he joins us with his fanboy, Bruce Belland. Here's a little bit about Bruce Belland. Bruce Belland formed his group, the Four Preps, in high school. They scored massive hits with 26 Miles and Big Man, and they were known for their especially entertaining stage shows. With the Four Preps, Bruce was just beginning. He is quite the polymath, and Entertainer, singer, songwriter, recording and concert artist, a screenwriter, actor, director, network executive, public speaker, playwright, producer, voiceover performer, radio host, humorist, and now an author. Bruce's book, Icons, Idols, and Idiots of Hollywood, My Adventures in America's <laughs> First Boy Band, is coming your way soon. And I would like to launch this conversation with an excerpt from Bruce's upcoming book. I'll set the stage. Bruce is 15 years old. He has snuck into the stage door at Zero's with a Distant hope of getting a glimpse of his idols, the Mills Brothers. Bruce writes, a few minutes later, he walks in. My absolute number one hero of all group singers in the whole entire universe, Harry Mills. No one idolizes his heroes like a 15-year-old boy, and I'm practically numb with excitement. Harry looks like a million bucks in a shiny black mohair tuxedo, butterfly bow tie, and patent leather tuxedo shoes. He is the essence of cool. Bruce, can you take the story from there for us? Sure. I, you know, first of all, uh, John, I think, I hope I'm right about having met you and your father at Jerry's Deli in the marina. I remember meeting the two of you and telling him how much he had influenced me in my career. And, and uh, he said, 
I said, it's wonderful. You're still out performing with your son. And he said something at the time that I didn't understand, John, but now I do. He said, you know, I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to do that. I think he said he was 83, and he said, the traveling's really starting to get to me. And I remember thinking to myself, because that was, I don't know what, what I was in my 60s, probably. How could anybody ever get tired of traveling? 83, 86. When I hit 83, I, I understood exactly what he was referring to. But, John, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I uh, I feel, as I said to Easy, I feel a little like a little leaguer who's asking questions of the son of Babe Ruth. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I'll try not to make the questions too esoteric. Well, first of all, John, uh, here's to you. I noticed you were enjoying so let's uh, clink our glasses <laughs> telephonically. I don't think there was any group that influenced the four preps um, the way the Mills Brothers did, partially because from the age of five on, my house was constantly filled with their music. During the war, my mother, of course, played till then, like every mother did whose husband was gone overseas. And uh, it uh, became, um, ultimately, the preps recorded it, and I, I still considered in all modesty, the best solo I've ever sung in 70 years. I, I, I felt such an affinity for the song and such an affection for it. But I just thought I'd give you a quick rundown of the songs by the Mills Brothers that we recorded. Till then, um, let me see, I'll Be Around, Someday You'll Want Me to Want You. Uh, my favorite preps track was She Was Five and He Was Ten. I'm sure you're familiar with that track. Um as I say, I'll, I'll try not to make the, the questions. Oh, and Up a Lazy River on the in-person album that kind of put the preps at the top in the concert field. It was a live concert album. We ended the show with the brothers' arrangement of Up a Lazy River. And one thing I've always wanted to know, I assume from listening that the brothers, it was head harmony, that there were no written charts as a rule. They simply ran a song down and felt their way harmonically. Yes, uh, absolutely. The, the, everything was head arrangements. Uh, they never uh, had any vocal charts written, uh, which is interesting because I'm working with a young man now uh, out of Ireland, of all places, and I've just started going through about 10 at a time. I'm just going to start creating a book of their vocal arrangements. It's never oh, wow. It's it's never it's never been done. It's never uh, anything that anyone has. Uh, and people are always asking, you know, because everybody always thinks of four part harmony, but the Mills always sang um, harmonies that fit the melody, and not necessarily, uh, you know, just just pick their spots where they where they let that rose, those those rose petals unfold, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah um, Man, I have to tell you, you know, if he was 83 at the time, you know, uh, he, when he passed, he was 84. So that must have been right around 1998. Okay. Uh, yeah, and, and I um, I worked with them 17 years, and, and, then, oh. and then another, you know, uh, well, it's been 40 years I've been doing this show in 2022. So, so you know, uh, but I've always admired you. I've always admired all the people. Because I worked with him, it took me it put me in an uh an area of music that i never would have been able to be around as much especially performing on stage uh, as i would have if i was just in my own age group 
Yes. So, so because of working with him, I got to work with you know, uh, you know the Sarah Vons and the Billy Ecksteins and the, you know, you know all of the, uh, you know the great artists, uh, you know, yeah. of era and and prior, you know, and all of the strong women that that uh, people don't recognize as much as they should, you know the the Helen O'Connells and Patty Pages and K Stars and you know these women were just just amazingly strong you know can you imagine being a 14 year old k-star on a bus you know with joe venuti and, and his gang you know and traveling the country i mean we have no idea what these people have gone through so it's an honor uh, to speak with you and and anything i can share with you of course i'm i'm happy to do so and hey wheezy yeah what's up man and tell fritz coleman to wake up over there I i'm with you man i i love I love anything having to do with music history. This is all very fascinating. And while you have my attention and kept me awake, can I call you Skip or John? Which do you appreciate? Well. No, no, not you, Bruce. Don't you respond to Skip. Uh, Just let me say something to Bruce. Um, uh, You want to see how I prepared for this? These are my notes and my questions. You've got cue cards the size of Bob Hope's. They had to bring him in in a forklift. <laughs> I've got seven more pages. No, that, John I'm, has no I, I'm, 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 I'm not going to inject much. Uh, this is a fascinating conversation. I just wanted to ask you one question that sort of sh- helps me understand. You said Harry was your favorite. And Harry, uh, John will back me up on this, was the personality in the group. Uh, not only a beautiful oh, voice, but... And so was that, was that the reason you tended to um, be drawn to him and his talent uh well you know i i must say musically vocally and as i say i wanted to be a singer since i was age four so i knew a lot of my mom was a vocal coach and a choir director donald was the essence of elegant smoothness i've never heard a man do head tones so mm-hmm. easy like it was just a walk in the park mm-hmm. what i liked about harry of course was his ebullience he was very outgoing and that night at Ciro's, you know kind of uh, solidified my affection for him because he was very much a, an extrovert and seemed to be genuinely interested in me. I told him my dad was a minister and I sang in the church choir. And he said, well, we all started in church choir. That's, and he actually sang a little bit of do Lord, oh, do Lord, oh, do remember <laughs> right there backstage at Cyril before he went out sta- on stage and thrilled the people. I meant to tell you, John, my two daughters lullaby the whole time they were growing up was daddy's little girl. And, you know, I, 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 I sang it with an extra emotion because of what it meant to me in my life and the Mills brothers. Um, let me get, if you don't, if you don't mind, let me get to the rest of my questions. Sure. Uh, I, I know at one point the brothers had a bass, one of the brothers sang bass. And when he no longer was with the group, I'm amazed at how, because I, there are barbershop purists, as I'm sure you know, who say, well, you can't have barbershop without a bass. You've you got to have four parts. Yet I never missed the bass when they sang. Somehow, I don't know if it was Herbert or who's, who it was, had a way of doing what you'd think a bass might do in certain parts of the harmony, so you, you, you never missed it. I listened the other day to one they had on an album called I'll See You in My Dreams. Very close harmony. And I I kept saying, there's four parts. I'm sure there are four parts, and I'm pretty good at picking up. I could not find a fourth part, but I I didn't miss it. Uh, Was there ever an instance in which they missed the bass or wanted a bass or were glad they didn't have a bass? What was their attitude towards that? Well, uh, thank you. 
It's a great question. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, the four-part harmony is, uh, yes, they kind of set the, the structures of that and the standards on that. Uh, and many groups took over four-part harmonies. Uh, you know, when the doo-wop thing came, the interesting thing to me, though, like if I would, if I would uh, effort to pick a, a comparative analysis, seemed like when doo-wop came around, you had four-part harmony, but everybody was singing at a loud level of solo artist. That's right. That's why you heard, you know, that high tenor and that low bass and everything in between. Whereas with the guys, they always had, uh, I always, like if you ever saw a logo of a hat I made uh, for them, it's it looks like a, a speaker, and then depending on how you see it, it's either four going in or, or 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 one. The idea was four voices coming in, but one sound coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yes, and, and that's the that's the whole thing. So <clears throat> the, the idea was a blended sound, of uh, of and creating that single sound. So yes, their brother sang bass and played uh, a four string tenor. Uh, but when he passed, their father, John uh, Sr., joined them. He did, he did more, more of a string, string bass, bass part, part, didn't he? Well, that bass that he did was, you know, I, I've talked to guys like Harold Winley, you know, uh, with the Clovers, and he, the, this was the sound that these guys all tried to emulate was John's <laughs> he, he had the greatest bass ever. Now, you mentioned uh, Herbert, because Herbert generally sang first tenor. I what thought Harry sang. sang. Well, Harry saying, well, again, here's the, okay, you're not wrong because as a group, they all had to learn each other's parts just in case somebody was sick one day or whatever. So they could all kind of interplay which part had to be uh, strengthened at any given time. But I have found, and maybe you have too with with other uh, singers that you've met over time, a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, I've met a few first tenors who also had very strong, deep bass ranges. Uh, now, I'm not talking about the Vienna Boys choirs. I'm just talking about, you know, natural, like the guy who sang with me for 20 years, Elmer Hopper sang, before he was with me for 20 years, he spent 20 years with Paul Roby's Platters. Oh. When he was working with <laughs> Paul, he was doing all the Tony Williams top solos, you know, that high... Yeah. At high ten, but uh, <clears throat> but Elmer could go as low as anybody on bass in any time that he wanted, and Herb was the same. So I think when they picked tunes, even as a trio, even when Norman Brown came in, because uh, Norman joined them when John passed, also eventually I think he actually started with him thirty six or thirty seven. Um, you know his his chord arrangements on his guitar and his lead tones uh, into the melody were yeah. just uh, artful and, and, and genius. And they set up so many things. And lastly, I'll leave you with this. So they knew, like even the, even the years when I worked with my dad, it was just a duel. And people would say, well, hey, I, I miss, you know, I don't miss that third part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good well, for you. The thing is, too, is, is, and I found with audiences and with fans, and I'm guilty of this with many artists, a lot of the stuff you hear with your heart. You know, when I started working with a lot of older artists, especially, seems like older women, you know, they get... They get looked at uh, like, oh, you're losing something, you know, a little earlier than guys. Guys get away with it a little bit longer or so the wobble. seemed, right? 
Yeah. But I've been on stage, shared stages with many artists that no one cared what they sounded like that night. They just wanted to see them. You know, I, I worked with Dorothy L'Amour, you know, a couple of times, and, and the audience didn't care. She couldn't sing a lick. Just, you know, they just wanted yeah, yeah. somebody who spent all that time. And by the time I worked with Burns, you know, Burns wasn't chirping like a bird, but nobody cared. You know, uh, you know what I'm saying, man. So yes, I, I don't think, um, I think they were skillful enough at knowing each other's strengths and weaknesses, if there would be any to pick the sounds that were perfect for the recordings. And I, and I think they always do that. And if, if Herb needed to drop down to a bass, he, he would do it. it. You know, Harry and, and uh, Dad, you know, Don, they, they switched. Oftentimes they would switch uh, taking the lead, and then the other would slip into the baritone. I heard Melody go on top for a minute. Does that uh, compute? Yeah, I, I, absolutely, man. I don't. I don't think they were built to any particular structures. They just wanted great sound and a, and a good song, and they, and they wanted to agree that yes, let's do this. I mean, even Paper Doll, which was a huge, as huge a hit as anything, uh, you know, no one really liked the song until they flipped it and did something with it to make it hip, you know, yeah, yeah. whatever hip you know may be at that time. So, and I think eventually they did settle into a bit of structure. You know, you mentioned uh, my dad's dulcet tones, if you will, you know, and so uh, it it was obvious many times he would take that pretty ballad part, and then when it would go to like a swing tempo, Harry would jump in with that bright, you know, just a little bit more nasally. A little more edged. Yeah, man. And that was it. And then finish up with that, you know, that blend, and it's, it's it, man. So, you know, you're acute. Did they ever have this is a singer's question did they ever have voice problems well they said they sounded so easy and i was going to say siblings have an advantage that four guys not related don't in their tonal quality is usually so similar if you hear the ames brothers for example they've got a natural kind of timbre of their voices that is very compatible did they ever have voice problems and did they ever warm up did they stand backstage and, and yeah, warm, warm I, up i couldn't get my dad to warm up to save his life and that was <laughs> you know, he had no intentions of wasting that time uh, and you know and we weren't allowed to have voice problems i mean even like you know if you came back with a cold he'd just say sing over it <laughs> so, I, I love it <laughs> the, the, you know that one of the things that i noticed in in their arrangements quite often they sang the melody the first time through usually with your dad donald singing that and establishing the melody but it was very much jazz oriented in that once donald set the melody harry would come back on the second course and say let me show you what i can do with that melody well i guess i've had a million dollars or more and cy coleman said about harry's solo on opus one it's one of the best jazz solos he's ever heard what they did that we emulated in our first hit, 26 Miles, they would do the melody, and then, let me see if I can see my notes here, and there were certain opus one, well, I'm out of my brain to think of a name to give it this tune so Harry can't groove. Yeah, you know, yeah, you'll never grow old, no, you know. They do what we came to call parallels. So the melody, and then the second chorus, well, the melody on 26 Miles is 26 miles across the sea, Santa Catalina is the way well, on the last course, 26 miles across the sea, Santa Catalina is the waiting for me, 26 miles across the sea. We did the parallels, and all we had to say in rehearsal, let's do parallels on the end, 
and everybody knew what we meant because we were used to the Mills Brothers still here. <laughs> I, I think that's so beautiful, you know, and and uh, I think that it's um, to me it's a, it's a real pleasure to hear you break it down almost, you know, into a musical theory or you know a little scientificness. I you know they worked for so long together that I don't know that they ever you know really broke it down into what are we actually doing you know i i just i just think that you know they they just they just knew each other's sound uh, you know when i started and again i try to keep things in perspective when i brought in elmer hopper who had spent 20 years with paul roby's platters now the platters were no slouch you know what yeah. i mean they might have had basically five years of hits, but those five years of hits were bigger and, and still today as big as anything that's ever been done. So, Tony Tony Williams. Williams. hey, man, nobody's doing Tony Williams tribute shows because they can't. So, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> let's let's be honest. It's like, you know, you don't hear somebody going around doing my Mathis show. No, you can't do that. You you don't know how. So, yeah. but, but the thing is that these artists, to, 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 in order to try and emulate the sound, uh, that's really what we're talking about here, uh, and and the formulas. Maybe some producer, you know, recognized that. I I don't know, but I can go all the way back to the early '30s and listen to the way they did things, and I don't see much difference at all, except maybe they were doing, you know, more as you mentioned the jazz. Well, you know, the scatting and the you know, but it was yeah, still yes. it was still that melody laid out. You know, uh, you can go back and listen to Dinah, you know, and, and, and I'm talking about like 1932, 33, 34, and Harry lays out the melody, you know, he may set it up, and then, you know, then those harmonies will come in, and then it just takes off onto, you know, onto its own thing. So, yeah, I, I um, it, you know, it is amazing. It's amazing when you say, you know, the songs that you guys recorded. I, I think, you know, even today, I think Michael Buble's done 12 of their tunes, man, you know, and so, yeah, yeah. you know, we, we all try and try and enjoy what, what is good, and then we try and, and do, do our version of what is good and, and make it hopefully, you know, as good, if, if not better. All the songs are pleasurable. I mean, that's on, right. and you know, that's, that's, what, that's what you want to do, man. You want to do something that everybody enjoys. One enjoyed listening to them and watching them because they enjoyed it. Particular Harry, who was dancing around, and Donald was just the elegant kind of, you know, soft sell. Oh, what a pure velvet wife. This is a question I've been dying to ask you since I found I'd be talking to you. Did they ever listen to, admire, or comment, or dislike any other groups? Um, you know, I I think, I think not. I, I mean, of course they admired people. You know, they there were people that they you know Harry, like you mentioned, seeing Harry at Ciro's. I bet Harry closed down Ciro's that night. Harry loved going out. He loved hanging with, you know, all his buddies were in Basie's band or Cab's band or Ellington's <laughs> band. You know, Harry was. You know, my dad had six kids, so he better not be out. But I'm sure he was out more than, than he, he was out, out all the time. time yeah, exactly right. Uh, you know, so yeah, of course. I mean, they loved you know, and and they they had a love affair uh, with with many uh, other artists. You know, uh, I think there was great admiration. Uh, you know, Louis Armstrong and Duke and. When, they, they didn't record when, when, with with Basie until '68, but that was because their schedules never gave them a chance to, you know. So yeah, yeah. when they finally got a chance to do that, they knocked out two albums, 
fast as they could and then went on with their lives and those are two of my favorite albums that they've ever done man you know i mean because you had uh um who's the guy uh dick, dick van uh, dick hyman you know arranged one one of those albums and uh chico farrell the other and you you had those great arrangers and then those great artists and those great players and everybody just yeah, showing yeah. up and laying it down man it's like you know first time i worked with basie's band uh my man um <laughs> <laughs> Sounded like, like you said the, the first, first time you worked, worked with Macy's. Macy's. Yeah, yeah. Right, I did. Yeah, you know, Freddie Green was still alive, man. You know, oh, Freddie ah. was with Basie probably before Basie got there. And I'm sitting <laughs> on a stage with like me and my dad. I got Freddie Green in my hip pocket. Uh, what's her name had come back from uh, from Denmark to take over the band? Uh, the great um, trumpet player. Uh, I'll come back to that in a bit. And, uh, you know, I was just realizing, like, if anything's wrong on this stage, it's none of them. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so uh, no, man, we, you know, we're, we're just been very fortunate to listen to a lot of great artists for a long time. And be believe me, they adore it. You know, their, their mom almost adopted Ella when she was a kid. And my dad actually introduced uh, uh, her to Chick Webb. So oh, they, wow. they go back. I mean, you know, yeah. And, and there were many more artists that they uh, they appreciate it when i was working down in palm springs like for a seven month stretch i used to drive back and forth all the time with my dad and we were listening to uh, uh the rolling stones um uh voodoo lounge like most of the time so you know the big fans of of, of good and great and and whatever man i mean and and if yeah, there yeah. were people that they didn't like it never came out of their mouths they, they weren't about to badmouth anybody that that you know they they, they weren't like that well, in the 50s, when we were starting uh, and developing a sound and figuring out, first of all, we, we started with Melody on top, and then we submitted our demo tape to Capitol Records, and they said, fellas, we already have the four freshmen. We don't really... And they were another idols of mine. I got to know Bob Flanagan and Ross Barber quite well, and I was just curious as to uh, knowing the natural instincts of the brothers if they ever listened to groups. When we were in the 50s, along came our other at idols, uh, the four lads, the four aces, the Ames brothers, uh, all of whom had melody second part down. We had a high tenor who could raise the rafters and then go to a falsetto or a head tone. He was my second favorite singer I ever sang with. So we experimented a lot, but it was, it, it's so to joy to meet you and talk to you about these guys, because as I say, it's like Babe Ruth's son. They, to, to me, they, from age five on, you can't get much more embedded with a group than for the lab. What is that? That's 81 years ago I first started listening to them. So uh, I just admire them so much. And, John, I mean, I really mean this honestly. If you ever need a tenor or a baritone, <laughs> uh, I'm in the book. Call me. I am available. I have a t my own tuxedo. <laughs> and, you know. Well, well, you got that glass of wine, so you had me at that. Um, <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah, well, yeah, it would be an honor to, uh, to share a stage with you anytime, man, and, and uh, we'd, we'd be happy to, to, to sing everything. I, uh, you know, the kid that I brought in, uh, and I do call him a kid because literally he just turned 34 years old, uh, his uh -huh. last birthday. And this guy knows more Mills Brothers tunes than I know, man. He's he's like asking me about stuff from the 30s that I'm like, I have to go look up. I'm like, wait, no, wait, I don't have that in the book, man. <laughs> so, so the music is in a, it's in good hands. You know, I, I think the uh, 
the world the, the world is aware of, of all the works that have been done. Uh, Wheezy mentioned, you know, 2022 or 1922 when the group formed. So, you know, we're just now doing what will be our, our first uh, celebration of Centennial, you know, and, and just, you know, 100 years of uh, of un, uh, how do I say it? Um, uninterrupted live on stage performances, you know, from 1922 through 2022. And then uh, in 25, we'll do 100 years of, you know, through, you know, when they first started in broadcast radio. So, um, you know, if I'm lucky enough to live so long and continue on. Um, I've spoken to many guys, Bruce, uh, who have given me, you know, similar stories i mentioned harold winley earlier from the clovers uh you know is where he he first got his his original hits and then uh, for years he performed with a group of the ink spots singing that bass and he Nick Danny. Danny. yeah and he told me about uh, the story about john and and how his bass influenced them both the brother but then uh but also the father and you mentioned Harry being such a effervescent kind of guy on stage well you know Harry adored his oldest brother John John Charles was his name but John being the eldest brother when he passed away uh, it, it was Harry kind of took on that responsibility of doing everything he could to set the set the tone you know set like he wasn't going to let his brother John down and this is where he developed that that stage presence that you know everybody in show business who's ever been on stage has remarked about you know they always uh, whenever I talk to somebody, they tell me, you know, that was Dean Martin's favorite guy was Harry. And he's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because they carried themselves similarly. And, but you know, the thing of, of it was really that they made everybody in a theater, they carried it as if they were talking to them directly. Like, you know, they were just having this one on one conversation. Everybody felt like they were just talking to them. He reminded me a little bit of Oliver Hardy in that he was a heavy set man who was very light on his feet. He would dance around and, and, and do these balletic moves for this rather stout human being. It, it, it was wonderful to see the lightness, not only of his personality, but of his terms of core. I mean, he was just, I always said Donald could have been Secretary of State, you know, especially when he grew <laughs> the beard. Such a handsome devil with that smooth. And I remember watching their documentary recently and hearing their manager say that Donald was always the one who said, it's going to be fine. Don't sweat it. Don't worry. No big deal. We'll, We'll be okay. Just let's get it together and go on. You are so right about that because, you know, when I started working with him, I was surprised. I mean, I can remember when Harry passed away, my mom said, well, that's it. That's that's the end of the Mills Brothers. Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised, uh, you know, when he well, I shouldn't say I was surprised. I was surprised that I ever got to work with him. But but I was I realized then, you know, how how much he really enjoyed singing. You know, some singers just love to sing. I, I work. You can with, see, see it. Right, I worked with Barbara McNair, man, and she was one of these people. She she'd have sung at a Seven Eleven if they had a microphone. <laughs> you know, she didn't care. She wasn't trying to. You know what I mean? And, and that's I'm not trying to cast any dispersions. I mean, she she was fantastic, but they just loved to sing. And my dad was like that. He just loved to sing, man. And and uh, uh, we, we we would come back from a two hour concert back to the motel, the Holiday Inn and sit in the parking lot for another half hour and sing because it was just such fun. There's a camaraderie that develops when you're on the road with other guys, you know, dealing with canceled flights and bad hotel rooms and terrible airport food and stuff, all the things to deal with. And then you get out on stage and it all kind of fades into the background because there you are. 
And as I've always said, I never wanted to be, well, what really set it in my mind to be a harmony singer was that night at Cyril's seeing the Mills Brothers. I had sung in my mom's choir uh, since I age four or five. My dad was a preacher, so he'd get me up on Sunday to sing, you know, uh, some little song. But the moment I heard them and that blend, and I had listened to them on record, but to hear it in person was a whole new experience. Not only to hear them in person, but to see the audience reaction. I say in the book, I sat backstage. I'm going to choke up on this. I sat backstage absolutely overwhelmed with the ease with which they absolutely transported that audience. I mean, it, it was musical magic. And I, on the way home that night, and I knew I was going to get in trouble because I had sneaked out of my house after my <laughs> parents went to sleep to go up to Cyril's to see the Mills Brothers. And I didn't care. I came back on cloud 10. I said, that's it. I want a harmony. I got to get some other guys. And along came the talent show at Hollywood High School looking for performers. And I grabbed three guys in the school choir and said, let's go and never looked back. So what I owe to the brothers is is monumental to me. And having a chance to talk to you is a, a great thrill, buddy. This has just been just, just wonderful. wonderful. Uh, hey, Bruce, you know, uh, you, you got my phone number. If you don't, Weezy will give it to you. And, and uh, we don't have to do anything special to get together, man. This, this is, you know, there's a lot of Jerry's Delis out there. So uh, <laughs> we, we can hang out anytime you want. Um, you know, I've worked with all those cats that you mentioned, Ed Ames. You know, uh, he told me his, he and his brothers used to sneak into a theater. I forget what town he might have been from. <laughs> Could have been Cleveland or Philly or some somewhere. And uh, he would say the same thing. And, of course, I did many shows with the, the four lads and Frank Busseri and, you know, those cats. And um, same stories, man. I, uh, I, the Isley brothers, I, I had a chance to meet Marvin Isley, who was the youngest brother. Uh, he was a bass player uh, back in, you know, in the 70s. And he was the youngest kid. I, uh, the Isleys were kind of like my family, like my family, my, my siblings, there were four of them. And then, you know, then came the next two. But those four were always straight. And, and Marvin would tell me that it, it was forever before they would let him go on the road with them. But he told me a story. He, he passed away uh, of uh, diabetes, ate him up, uh, the youngest cat. And, and uh, when my dad was hospitalized, Marvin happened to be in the hospital at the same time uh, with, with his bouts. And uh, he had heard that my dad was in the hospital and he just had to go down and meet him. You know, that was, uh, that was something he had to do. And so he told me that his father was a military guy from i believe cincinnati ohio and when he met his mother his he said hey this is uh, the isley brothers dad he said we're going to get married and we're going to have four kids and they're going to be the next mills brothers <laughs> and i'm like you gotta be kidding me man now the isley brothers man you know i don't know what you know i i if you if you love music, you love all genres of music that are good. Uh -huh. And these are the only cats that I know as a family that have recorded in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And I mean, just hits after hits for decades after decades. And uh, and they continue to tour. And so, you know, like you love talking uh, this moment, I would love to speak with Ernie or, or you know, uh, uh, you know the, 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 the other brother uh, who's still touring because... I, I, I just I just remember this moment with their their youngest brother, man, how important that was, how significant that was, how nice yeah, it was yeah. for him to go in and talk to my dad in the hospital, 
how nice it was for me to hear these stories because listen bruce truth of showbiz and and the way we get to travel the world and the niceties that we come across as much as the the hardships of of the the, the crappy hotels sometimes you know is it, the stories right it's the stories yeah. that we get from people. It's the stories you get from your fans. It's the stories that you know you hear from people who who uh, who tell you how much a particular song or a moment meant to them. And they and come they up to you and say, say uh, "Till then, then was my song with my wife." You know, that was our that was our song. Uh, yeah, I mean that that that's. You get somebody coming up with an old dog-eared LP from thirty-five years ago <laughs> that wants you to sign it. I mean, it, it's. It, I've always said it's the greatest business in the world to be in to make a living because when you're gone, you're not really gone. I mean, look at the Mills Brothers. You know, you're right, and that can that's a little bit daunting too because I know I've I've been in situations where somebody will play like one of my you know my dad's tracks or whatever, and to me his singing voice was so close to his speaking voice that it's it's almost a little you know it can be a bit offsetting you know to hear somebody that close to you you know in that same kind of a tonal thing it it is beautiful man and uh you know it's an honor to to meet you and to and to speak with you well, same here buddy yeah, all right well fritz, fritz and i have a couple of questions and this one is yeah. for, this one is for both of you and um Bruce, in your book, you talk about your relationship with your dad who pushed back against your interest in the entertainment business. And John, you grew up with a dad who was larger than life. And so I'd love it if you could both talk about how you strove to earn the, the respect of your fathers. John, why don't you go first, buddy? You're the one that had a father who was a legend. legend. I just I had, had a father. father. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, uh, one thing I've always, uh, one thing I never missed was support from mm. uh, my family. Now, Harry, of all people, <laughs> was smart enough to tell me, hey, man, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> you know, uh, you, you know, he realized I was a pretty good golfer when I was a kid. And I can remember Harry was trying to send me to uh, Arnold Palmer at a golf school in Lake Tahoe. Oh, I was, wow. I was about 11, 12 years old. And Harry promised, he said, man, John, he said, just, no, he used to call me Skip. He said, just go, go play golf. And I, this is a direct quote. I'll never forget this. He said, John. <laughs> If well, you just, if you as just as my hold that thought yeah. for one second and let John finish his thought, and then oh, I'm sorry because he was quote, sorry, he was John. about to quote Harry. Forgive me, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. please, man, I've, I've quoted Harry too many times my whole life. No, I want to hear You know, no Harry's fascination was, you know, he he. I mean, again, I try to keep things in perspective, and he understood you know the world he understood showbiz i mean these guys when you talk about like this isn't today it wasn't the internet if you went and did a tour in europe in 1934 you were on a steamship or some kind of ship that was going to be you know weeks you know getting back and forth and stuff so the the grind of being uh, of the artists that they were even as magnificent as their careers were it had to be extraordinary and it had to take tremendous dedication so while he was watching professional golf open up you know 12 years old it's night it's 1968 so again keeping things in perspective as as black successful if you want to say that uh, uh men in the united states you know they took on the responsibilities of of sponsoring other 
young black uh, golfers on the PGA uh. Tour. You know, all the Charlie Siffords and all those cats. You know, they they didn't have any love from from you know white media sponsors. I mean, they barely were able to get into tournaments, and, that, and this is why the PGA started calling things invitationals. You know, and they didn't they didn't have to allow in all professional golfers. So oh. again, trying to keep things in perspective. You know, having seen the way things were growing and coming about. Harry's thing was, you know, listen, man, you can have a career in professional golf. And his quote was, Wheezy, I guarantee if you just finish in the top 10, you don't have to win anything. But if you just finish in the top 10, you'll make more than $100,000 a year. (laughs) (laughs) And and to him, this was a gold mine and certainly beat... You know, trying to trying to you know catch the next plane to. <laughs> hey, John, the the uh, the documentary about the brothers on YouTube is fascinating, and it goes back to some really old film, like late twenties, early thirties. And what yeah. I was blown away by was even with the old primitive recording techniques, their harmonies were just pristine, even in that scratchy old sound that came out of those. And I, I mean, that separated the men from the boys, as far as I'm concerned. But somebody, but somebody in that, in the, in the, uh, in the interviews, um, made a great comment when, when asked about the key to their success over 55 years. He said, "The key is when you're with brothers, work together, live apart." Don't yeah. yeah how did remember that. How, how did the brothers get along? Seriously, um, uh, I mean, they seem so close and tight, and finish one another's thoughts and stuff. Well, well you got to remember, man. I mean, like, I, I was born in '56, so they were, you know, 22, 30, 32, 42, 52. They had already been at it, you know, thirty some years professionally before I was even around. Um, I, I never noticed any discrepancies of any, you know, anger or whatever between them. Uh, by the time I was born, my dad was living more in Los Angeles than other parts of the country. But I understood Herb lived in New York for many years uh, when he was in. Uh, well, they all lived in New York for many years, but I think he kept a place there uh, longer than they did. Uh, when they all pretty much settled in Los Angeles as a first place base. Uh, they lived close enough to each other to be able to see each other whenever they wanted to and, and not be a bother to each other, you know, whenever they didn't. Uh, Herb ended up later years moving to Las Vegas. Um, her, you know, Herb loved, like like different people can live in Las Vegas. My dad would, wouldn't be the kind of guy who could live in Vegas. But, I couldn't either. Right, but Herb loved it because uh, he didn't gamble. Uh, he, he loved people. He was a people watcher. And and uh, even when uh, he moved there, I think ESPN, a couple of these places were just starting. When he retired, because he retired pretty much after Harry passed. I mean, when we started rehearsing the act again, it was my, myself, my dad, and I. Actually, they were going to uh, use my brother, Alan, but Alan, when Harry got ill, ended up working more in television, uh, in in, um, in the costuming end of the stuff. And so, so that was a good job. And so... When I ended up uh, working with them, it, it would have been myself and, and my dad and Herb, but Herb's back became, you know, too much of a grind. So I, that he lived in Las Vegas, he used to love to go to all the fights, you know, the boxing matches. <laughs> he had offered, they had offered him, um, 
if he wanted to become a um, one of the boxing commissioners in the state of Nevada, which which he thought about, but but he didn't. But I mean, this is just how much he loved and and, and enjoyed that. So, uh, you know, I mean, I yeah, they they lived apart, but I think. I think my dad was in the hospital, you know, the, the day Herb passed away. I, I, I kind of remember him talk, you know, them talk. They, they stayed in touch. Um, you know, Harry, whenever they rehearsed, they would rehearse it, you know, somebody's house. You know, it was, I don't ever remember them, like, needing to go to some studio to rehearse. You know, uh, uh, I, I don't. I don't remember any troubles, uh, you know, between the three of them. And if they did, it, it was short-lived, you know. So, Bruce, go ahead and t- t- tell that story about your relationship with your dad, because I think it's very interesting. Well, my dad was my, my biggest fan in terms of my music ability and singing. I mean, I sang my first solo at age four uh, on his radio show. He had a radio show in Chicago, and I sang God Bless America, for which I was told if I sang it through without a mistake, I'd get a stick and chewing gum. <laughs> so live on the air, I sang. Got to the end of the song, God bless America, my home, sweet home, where's my gum? <laughs> of course, the whole crowd broke up. The congregation applauded and got to their feet, and that, that was it. I was hooked. I wanted to be a singer. Well, right from that point forward, my dad, as a fundamentalist preacher, could see no career for me but being a gospel singer. Billy Graham was his one of his friends, and, and he admired him a great deal, and he had a great tenor that traveled with him and sang in all his revival meetings named uh, Cliff Burroughs. Well, he used to say, when I do a show with my, a, a performance with my dad, when he spoke, I'd get up and sing. Well, I'm Billy Graham and you're Cliff Burroughs. So that was his fixation from age four. And obviously, as we got older, we began to audition the preps in, uh, in, in singing nightclubs. There was a place in Hollywood called the Peacock Lane, corner of Western and Hollywood Boulevard. We were 17, 18 years old, he was saying it. My dad went down to watch us, walked in the front door, turned around, went right back out. <laughs> and when I asked him later why, he said, that's a padded sewer. I don't spend time in padded sewers. So slowly our dreams of what I was going to be separated, and he insisted on making it a gospel career. I probably sang at 40 or 50 funerals and weddings growing up. My dad would do the eulogy, and then I would get up and sing, there'll be light in the road from the palace on high. And my dad afterwards said, oh, we're, what a great team we are. you got such a great future. So when the final break came, I was a student at UCLA. We had just signed with Capitol Records, and that was okay with my dad because Capitol Records, you went to the studio right there in town. You didn't travel and go to padded sewers. No big deal. Then we got our first professional engagement to sing at Fax Nightclub in San Francisco. Well, to my father, San Francisco was Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, you might as well tell him I was going to sing at a house of ill repute. So that came a big break. And that the night before I left for San Francisco, we had the inevitable showdown in his inner sanctum, his office, his magnificent office in the in the church sanctuary. And when I had to go over there and knock on the door and talk to him in his office, I always trembled because I was entering, you know, the inner sanctum. And I just said, Dad, this is what I want to do. I'll try and keep on the straight and narrow. I know that's what you want. But uh, this is something I've dreamed of forever since I heard the Mills Brothers. And uh, I've got to do this. And so from then on, we never had an alienation. He just simply was not that enthused about it. And we did, I don't know how many Ed Sullivan shows. Well, he never saw one because he was in church at the pulpit on Sunday night when Ed Sullivan was broadcasting. 
And of course, in those days, he didn't have a re recording. So he had a kind of a guarded pride in what the preps accomplished when we got our hits. He'd come to college. We did a lot of college concerts. He'd come to a concert at UCLA or SC and enjoy it thoroughly. But, uh, you know, he, he never was thrilled that I didn't become uh, a gospel singer. You know, that that's tough, man. But I, I've heard that similar uh, other artists who you know their their parents were like that i mean they said sam cook went through that um you know, marvin marvin gay went through a little bit of that you know um I, you know, I i think that when when they were tied to that church of course I, you know i mean the mills brothers might have been um you know the worst thing happening if if you were a fan of you know Brahms or Mozart or something. I mean you know I I don't know. It's it's everybody has their bugaboos, right? But I think it's tough when it, when it's coming from you know your your parents. I mean you know from, from well, my mother was, was a, 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 a great, great counterbalance to my father. She would sit. I'd sit on the piano next to her for an hour, as I said in the book, while supper burned on the stove. We were learning the new choral arrangement and how I learned how to read music. She'd get, you know, in those days, if you were interested as a choir director in a particular new anthem, you'd contact the publisher. They'd send you a sample sheet of the sheet music. This was before Xerox. My mom would put the sheet music on on the piano and say, OK, sing the melody. And I'd sing the melody. I'd sing the alto. I'd sing the alto an octave higher. I'd sing the bass. I'd sing the bass an octave higher. So she was constantly, she was a radio gospel singer when she met and married my father. He had a radio show. She was one of the singers on the show, and that's how they got together. But she was such a champion of mine and such a supportive help and such a vocal coach. Say, and when you say the word hurry, don't say hurry, say hurry. Uh, you know, enunciation, getting the consonants out, staying in tune, warming up properly. So between my mom and my dad, I guess I came out okay because I had both elements working on me. <laughs> so I'm really interested in phrasing because you've got everyone needs to pronounce the word and finish the word. And when sometimes sometimes words end with, you know, a couple of consonants. Um, so yeah. how do you work on phrasing and how do you get that right? May I offer an answer? I, I don't know. I'm not sure who you're asking. but I, Both of you. Uh, both of you. Yeah. We, you know, it was a funny thing. We we caught lightning in a bottle in the preps in that Marv Ingram, our high tenor, as I say, one of the best singers I've ever sang with, sung with, uh, and I read music. The other two guys didn't. But uh, I remember Ross Barber saying to me, or the freshman, he said, you guys seem to have a understand each other and phrase just automatically. Glenn Larson, our baritone, because all our parts, John, were written by our, the man we called the fifth prep. He was a man named Lincoln Mayorga, who's a genius pianist and arranger. And uh, sometimes he'd show a, Marv his high tenor part, or Marv would read it, and I'd get my melody. Glenn would intuit the baritone part without hearing a note of it. He knew right where he was supposed to go and what he was supposed to do. And our, our bass, Ed Cobb, who had a four-octave range and a wonderful bass, I remember once early on, I said, you know, Ed, I can teach you how to read music if you'd like. He said, no, 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 I, no, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I just want to do it the way I've always done it. I want it to be natural. And as far as phrasing, uh, you know, we worked hard on it. My mom had trained me. If there's a consonant in the word, pronounce the consonant. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and if you sing hurry, don't sing hurry, sing hurry. 
And if you if you say whisper, then whisper the tone. If the word is whisper. So I got a lot of that from my mom. And as I say, the four of us kind of fell into it uh, naturally, I guess. We certainly never phrased with the ease <laughs> of the Mills brothers, but we managed to get by. You guys did terrific. Um, similar, the, the guy's mother was uh, sang light opera, and uh, and their father was a concert bass singer. So I had actually, I've seen a playbill, I doubt if that's what it was called then, but of him doing like solo concerts in 1910. So they had this musical back, and I guess whether you were in radio or doing a live performance, uh, the idea was, you know, if the audience couldn't understand what you were saying, well, that didn't help, right? So yeah. when you talk about you talk about phrasing, enunciation, articulation, I, I think that went hat in hand. And also, you know, the feel of a song uh, is kind of like that pillow that you lay against, right? So you can do your phrasing. And if the song is rushed or out of tempo or, you know, if somebody's pushing it too fast or, you know, if you're working with a band that uh, slow means soft and, and and loud means fast, you know, sometimes there's no in between and it's it's hard to uh, to talk them down. Everybody isn't very, uh, you know, you can't always work with Count Basie, man, or, or with, you know, I mean, some, yeah. but the interesting thing about, you know, live musicians is it's not always... Like you can work with the greatest musicians in the world, but if they're phoning it in, it, it's not going to come come over, right? Yeah. Yes. Work with musicians who are really struggling to get everything that they're supposed to get, and that gets across to the audience, you know, even more so than any mistakes. So, all of this works hand in hand with the ability to deliver the phrasing uh, that you want to put over in a song. If you listen to Sinatra, I mean, isn't you know besides his you know isn't the whole thing with Sinatra his phrasing right the way he That's delivered, right. and if you listen to his orchestrations and of course the greatest you know arrangers in the world and the greatest studio musicians in the world, you know the, nothing was ever in his way. Same thing with Sarah Vaughan. All phrase. I mean, obviously the most delicious voice ever and one of those tremendous ranges but it's all phrasing and it's because you know well if you listen to her stuff i mean it's like strings you know mm. and maybe some sweet trio you know you, you didn't always have you know like you, she didn't need all these punchy things going on everywhere and that just gave her the room to phrase you know uh uh i don't i think it's it's one of the most under rated things that that a singer can ever do is how to articulate and how to phrase so much so that today's software and computers you know they they create uh you know ways to correct pitch or to to you know to to stretch a note or you know i mean i mean yeah obviously <laughs> the software people realize how important it is so well your dad and i'll see you in my dreams the song is Someone took you out of my arms. No, no. Someone took you out of my arms. Just a, And we used to do a satire about a singer going, Softly, I will leave you. So, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I saw Wayne Newton in Vegas one night. He tends to be fairly glib. And he opened with, where have all the flowers gone? Long time. And he gets to, where have all the young men gone? Gone to graveyards. Yeah, one and all. <laughs> Wayne, Wayne, you're talking about kids dying in war and going, what, what are you doing? Snapping your fingers going, yeah, graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, hey man, but I remember when Wayne was a kid and working in Vegas when he was too young to walk through the casino. I think they lied about his age too, because you know his age, his voice didn't drop till he was twenty one. So I think they told folks he was he was eighteen because he was tall, but he was thirteen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he had a beautiful voice oh, when he was oh, a yeah. kid, man. I mean, oh, yeah, he yeah. always had a beautiful voice. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Uh, you know, listen to any great solo artist or any great uh, group. I mean, the sync of you know. Another thing for phrasing could be the syncopation of, of whatever that phrase is that you're sending. So it doesn't matter if you were in a jazz thing, you know, guitar players try and sound like sax players and sax players yeah. try and articulate like, you know, great guitar soloists. And um, if you're in a different era of music, you know, uh, the Boswell sisters had had a sound, but they still had to phrase, you know, whatever it was they were putting. And because you're singing in a vocal group, you know, you can't do two or three different phrasings, you know, it's like it needs to be in sync. And the right. other thing I noticed about the guys, um, and this was true like even to late in my dad's life, is the breath control he had. Uh, it I don't know where it came from. I mean, this guy probably smoked two, three packs of cigarettes a day since he was wow. 10. I don't know how he did it. <laughs> I do remember that when I would take him for a physical or something, like even late in his life, even when he wasn't well, people were amazed at how his lungs were just like, you know, when they tell him to take a deep breath. And, yeah, yeah. and they would say, okay, you can stop now. I mean, you know, because he could just, he had this capacity. And then when they when they sang their notes, they knew how much air to put behind them. And this guy had a real breathy sound, man. So he sounded like he was just like, you know, he'd send you this loving fog or whatever. But it just, he never cheated a note. You know, uh, if you listen to any of the endings of his notes, yeah, they yeah. just... You know, they were just as beautiful as as the beginning of them. So, I think phrasing means a lot, uh, Wheezy. I, 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 yeah, me too. I just want to ask one question of Skip before we go. I'm just wondering because I don't know if we've ever talked about how your relationship with your father grew during those years that you were traveling together uh, as as partners. I guess it would be, you know, as father and son. But you know, and I'm sure he's he's always your father within that but how did you come to know one another and and grow together during during that journey you know i mean it's different working uh my i i tried to take something out of all of them you know from from on stage from doing the mills brothers show the mills brothers show was um unlike anything I've, I've ever had a chance to do musically. I mean, I always did my own music. I was a composer also. I always liked the idea of doing, you know, some hipper stuff or whatever. But, you know, you remember I was the guy who told him I didn't think Cab Driver would ever work in 1968. <laughs> yeah. You know, and of course, that's why they never listened to me. So, because um, it's 68. I mean, you know, I'm listening to The Temptations and, you know, there's so much stuff going on. Uh, but that said, working with him was... He was great. I mean, my feeling was Harry was gone, and Wheezy, you knew Harry a bit, so you can you might you might pick up some aspects of this. Harry wasn't an arrogant fellow, but Harry knew who he was, and he knew what he had accomplished over his career, and that wasn't about being prideful, but he did require people to treat him with the respect that he gave to them. 
And so when I started working with my father, and now you can imagine, okay, if we're working for people who've been booking, well, the first thing you're going to hear is, well, there's no way, just like you mentioned, is there any way three guys could sound like four? Well, there certainly wasn't any way two guys could sound like three. three, And I'm like, listen, man, he's always going to be Donald Mills. So I don't don't care, you know, however, whatever we do, A, I'm never going to embarrass the group. You know, I'm never, even when Herb uh, first started um, uh, going into rehearsal with my dad and I, I remember Herb had some trepidations because if Herb left when he left, he left on top. And he really never wanted to, he was concerned, he didn't want to get involved in something that was going to be lessened than what it was that they had accomplished. And that wasn't an ego, that was just... A reality, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he worked very hard, and it was harder for him to sing all those high tops at the age of seventy-seven or whatever he was then than it was, you know, uh, when he was younger. So for him to to stop was it wasn't the end of the world. He had a beautiful life in Vegas. He, you know, with my dad, he just wanted to keep going, man. Um, the album that we did, the Still There's You album, I think we first went in the studio in 91 or 92 somewhere around there i know we we uh we reformatted it for for digital cds i think in 95 so i think it was in 91 or so he was like already 76 years old at the time of recording and his recording i mean he should have been grammy nominated his is the way he did you always heard the one you love just on that album was just remarkable so he was a guy who never lost his chops he always enjoyed singing and when i started working with him mike i i first took the the position like i just i wasn't going to let anybody you know uh diminish him yeah, you yeah. know uh uh we used to put on our contracts, you know, when people hired us, it was John and Donald Mills of the Mills Brothers. And the idea wasn't to give my name first. The idea was he did not ever want to do concerts that his fans would come see and expect something different than what was yeah, on yeah. stage. He didn't want to put a fake group of guys together that could just sing, you know, some guys... You know, I remember I won't I won't mention any names, but I remember one guy telling another guy in a group, you know, just go get you and three nobodies and you can keep doing your, you know, your show. Well, that was never his thing, man. You know, we never just tried to put bodies on stage. So I spent I joined him when I was 27 years old, man. And I spent my time, first of all, just making sure that things were good. For him things were comfortable for him <laughs> that when we went to san francisco we didn't have some promoter who was trying to put him in some place he wouldn't stay when he was a teenager no you know we're still at the fairmont you know or, or whatever yeah, so, yeah so a lot of that uh carried on and he was always great by me and if you remember if you ever see any early footage of us together the only thing i ever changed was like the brothers, when they sang, you know, they always used one microphone. And we did that forever until it seemed like he, he might have lost a little, uh, never his tone, but maybe the, you know, the, the force of his voice. <laughs> uh, so rather than me, I started backing off a bit just to keep that blend. 
but at some point in time i i made it a point then i had them bring you know two microphones to the stage and then get a nice balance of his voice consistent because he was always the sound anyway man i'm just trying not to get in his way and everybody we ever worked with you know that those were his buddies and his friends and and uh i was i was just lucky enough to to be along for that ride man and you know, when you're working with people who I consider giants and they're looking at him like, oh, my God, I'm on the stage with this guy. You know, <laughs> I worked with Woody, man, before, you know, before he passed. Not not like his band, like Woody, man. And we're sitting backstage and he's like, he's curled over like, you know, you know, like it might be easier to kneel than to stand up. And then when his music hits, right? Yeah. He's getting ready to take the stage. He just unfolds like a like a military staff DI sergeant, man. His back goes straight and he just took the stage with such command. This is how these guys work. This is how your generation was, Bruce. You know, you guys so, took so much elegance, pride and and professionalism in and knowing how honorable, how how nice it was that an audience would actually come to see you sing and listen and have a great time and this is the other thing we you asked me like working with my dad it's so different because we worked i don't know i don't know how many places all over the world it was not like today you know like if if you knew if you had friends in the audience it was a nice surprise right or maybe if you had some uh you know some relatives show up or whatever you know today man you do a show like the promoters almost expect you to call every one of your friends and their cousins and their buddies and and you know and if you can get them to buy drinks too we might be able to pay you guys i mean it's like the biggest you know and it's like where did where did that go man because these artists man they 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 filled the room you know and because i worked with the kind of music that it was it did not keep me from working with any type of artist i mean i worked with like the eddie arnold's of the world you know uh, all the country cats man uh, all the great jazz guys you know it, it's just it's just this beautiful beautiful body of work and me working with him to go back to finishing your question there is nothing that could compare to that he was just he was as great to me as he was when i was seven years old he's trying to teach me how to hit a seven iron you know, uh, golf course, you know. I mean, he was just—he was very protective. Also, he always put me over when we talked. He always uh, would would, uh, you know, when, when we would slay a show. He, he'd always—he wasn't like me, me, me. He was—he was always pointing it over. And if you ever look at any of the stuff, the the little footage that we might have on stage together, you can see it in his eyes, man. When we catch each other's eyes and look at each other, I think. I think I made him, uh, uh, you know, I think he was very happy. And I think it's a, just an odd thing familially, you know, that we were able to continue on um, as, as long as we did. And he also well, knew I wanted to do other music, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, but this was a, a, a great opportunity. And You can have lost, the, missed the flight, you got four hours sleep, the food was terrible at the hotel. And here they are, and suddenly, <laughs> boom, you know, and you get off stage and realize how tired you are. But it, it's, a, it's a great, uh, great energizer. And the devotion with which the Mills Brothers were always received, I mean, what they represented, uh, you know, how many other groups sang songs during World War II that we'll never forget, that brought couples closer, were separated by the war? I mean, till then, it, that's, it's, uh, what a tribute. John, I got to tell you, buddy, 
<laughs> you and come from a great gene pool. <laughs> well, you know, I thank you. It it wouldn't mean anything. Uh, it wouldn't mean half as much, uh, you know, and without being able to have these kinds of conversations. I've had them with many people, like I said, you know, the Ed Ameses and all these cats, but I've never had a chance to really chronicle them. You know, I, I talked to Don Newcomb, who was one of the great Dodger pitchers, you know, forever, and, and cats, you know, and and you know all the all especially you know just bringing in the component of them being young black children and then young black teenagers and then young black men and then growing into middle-aged black men and all the the all the turbulence that was going on in the country all around them all the time all the different changes and how they were always just there for each other and how they were always there for everybody around them you know, a, a friend of mine asked, it's, it's always been tough to do like a Mills Brothers musical or something, which I pushed for a while. Uh, one of the guys was saying, you know, there's just no scandal in their lives. You know, there was just, you know, you know how books are sold and movies are sold. Or, you know, you got to talk about the dirt, like who did yeah. they hate, you know, or whatever. Uh, but I was telling him that for the Mills Brothers, the extraordinary thing to me was that they normalized being black in your house. You know, when they came on the radio, when they came on television, when they came on, you know, traveling around the world, you know, they were they were in people's homes for so many years, day in and day out and day in. And this is what, you know, even when you talk about the 1930s films and stuff, right, you know, or, or uh, whatever they call those uh, soundies. You know, uh, they, yeah. they they their extraordinary civil rights presentation was that they made it possible for everyone else mm -hmm. and they made their normal they normalized uh you know blackness in, in mainstream homes and hey man that didn't change the world but it sure made it a lot better for everybody i ever talked to man wow. i mean I, I talked to sammy davis sammy davis told me he couldn't have done anything he without the mills brothers oh. you know uh, nat cole man he i mean my dad introduced marie to to nat ah. well, that's how you got natalie you know <laughs> there's an extraordinary life that they lived that had very little to do with being on stage but could not have happened had they not been on stage so anyway, Bruce, I love you, man, and we can meet wherever is close or wherever is far. Love I have it. them in Santa Barbara. Maybe we can go up there one day. Oh, I love it. Well, I'm 86. I want to. I want to do this before my bucket gets kicked. <laughs> you know. I'm, I'm going to hook it up, Bruce. I'm going to hook it up. I want to say to you, Skip. You know, and I know you know this, but you gave your father the most beautiful gift th that he could not only continue singing, doing what he loved, what made him feel the most like himself and the gift that he had, but then your gift and, and seeing the man that you had become on stage next to him after sharing that space with his brothers, now sharing it with his son, I can't, you, you, I, know, I know you know how profound that is, but it's just beautiful, just beautiful. And uh, I think Fritz had one more. Oh, no, I just wanted to say a, a, a couple of comments. First of all, I think the Mills Brothers and their style and their joie de vivre on stage and the way they impeccably dressed and their um, and their uh, choreography all traveled. You, you mentioned it earlier, John, 1968, talking about Motown. I think those guys, those, you know, the tops and the temps and all those guys saw the importance of that elegance and making audiences comfortable that way. And that was the Mills Brothers. 
I, I think even if they didn't, you know, Barry Gordy and, and, you know, Barry had a staff of people who, who trained, who made, you know, his artists become stage worthy mm-hmm. and uh, costumers and choreographers and, and, uh, you know, that, that whole thing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I took due note, man. I, I sat backstage with Harry Belafonte one, one night, uh, he was, we were in Cohasset, Massachusetts. They used to have this tent there that, that people would work. I forget what they called it, but, uh, and he was closing one night. We were going to play there the next day. And I saw him and my dad just sit back in his trailer and they must've talked for two hours, man. And I'm just like taking this shit in, <laughs> part of my language, because it's, it's just remarkable. I mean, you know, and, and to my dad, like Harry's like a young kid. You know, and he's already an older guy, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, and there, there's just this, uh, I, I don't know how to explain it, man. I, I, I don't know who whose lives they didn't touch, you know, whether it was uh, uh, musically or, uh, you know, with, with all the different media that they, you know, you know, from the phonographs, all the, hey, man, you mentioned uh, uh, Till Then and the war stuff. Uh, this last Christmas, not this one, but the one that passed before, there was this movie with uh, DiCaprio, uh, Don't Look Up. And he he does like this whole scene in this car where he's playing till then to his girlfriend, wife. I, I can't remember the, this, you know, and, and he's got this kid in the back and he's describing, man, this is the Mills Brothers. And listen to these words and Harry singing till i mean it's just a, and he they did like 10 minutes of mills brothers stuff oh, in this oh. movie that was just out at the end of you know 2021 yeah, how yeah, many how many decades decades later? Later? i mean this is this is where it is man you know and it's it's a magnificent thing and i don't take it lightly i want to talk about till then since you brought it up because bruce earlier talked about how impactful that song was it was recorded in 1948 the mills brothers version no, it was recorded earlier than that because it was it was that was during the war during the war Oh, okay. Uh, I I don't know where I got that date wrong, but anyway, uh, it was it was so resonant with families that had kids fighting abroad. Then it was re-released by a band called the Classics in 1963, which made the song relevant to people who had kids fighting in Vietnam. So it got recycled for the same emotion all those years later. Pretty important. And the Hilltoppers had a hit on it in the fifties. Yeah, I mean, a lot of those songs, you know, even the Mills, like when you said they did it in 48, they may have because they re-recorded their own songs, you know, several times, uh, different albums and different different uh, labels and, and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, well, well, you know, and they were also fortunate just to have these, these they, they all chose great music. You know, they, they wouldn't do a song unless they all liked it. Right. And I mean, look at, look at all of the, you know, the tunes that just have left a... Paul McCartney, you know, uh, uh, on Kisses on the Bottom, I think it was, you know, he had written a song for them um, called uh, My Baby's Regret or something like that. I Excuse me if I messed it up, Mr. McCartney, Sir McCartney. Uh, I actually have a copy of the lead sheet here that he had sent uh, to Henry Miller's office, Wheezy remembers Henry, uh, uh, for them to record. But uh, Harry was already getting a little bit, you know, sick and they never had a chance to record it, so I listened to a recording that he did with Wings, uh, and I just recently a good friend of mine, my, my sound engineer, met uh, Paul McCartney's guitar player with Wings, who uh-huh. remembers recording that song. And uh, McCartney just redid it with uh, Diane Krall, and I think she was on piano, and uh, uh, 
John Clayton on bass and these cats when he did Kisses on the Bottoms. And I think he also does Bye Bye Blackbird. So, you know, you know, even the Beatles, man, were, you know, they just, they, they were, they understood, you know, what, 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 and the last, I'll leave you with this, was Elton John. Um, I had a friend who played, played horn on, on when, when he was traveling, not this last year, but, you know, several years ago, man. And, and that's what he would talk about. He said, like, on the road, they would talk about the Mills Brothers stuff that they were doing, man. So, <laughs> so you know, it's, it's, it's a world of, I don't, I don't, you know, that and a cup of coffee will get you a cup of coffee. But I do share these things with my children so that yeah, they yeah. have a conversation if they want, you know, with anybody that, that means much to them. And uh, and I'm I'm good with it, man. You know? Well, I wanted to show I wanted to show you one thing, Bruce, uh, because I, you know it's just possible. This is from Ciro's, uh, and uh, this may be the night that you that you met Harry. I don't know, but it's uh, it's a picture of them with their mom with their mom and dad. So uh, on the back it says April 9th, nineteen fifty six. So I don't know if that was the night, but. Well, I was see, I was born in thirty six, and I was fifteen when it happened. So I. I knew I should have listened in math class. I don't. No, I think I think that could be a a, a little beyond when you met him, but pretty much yeah. in that in that in that pocket. And uh, what year was that? You know, this, so this you had just been born, Skip. This is April 9th, nineteen fifty six. I was so graduated from, from high school. school. Yeah, I I wasn't born yet, but I was just thinking, uh, <laughs> you know, their dad worked with them. I think up until 58 so he might have been you know working with the group then because he spent 22 years with them Mm -hmm. uh and and for ethel to be in that in that picture with them that that was their mom uh that that's that's a keepsake man that's yeah i was born in may so my mother was probably pissed that my dad wasn't home (laughs) she was very pregnant in that in that moment all right so we have what we what we're doing until we have sponsors for our show is we're gonna let uh uh, our favorite causes be our sponsor and our shout out so who are we helping help others tonight we're going to uh talk about the children's burn foundation an organization very close to my heart i'm on the board of directors there you know a person's life can instantly change with a burn injury now this really sprang to people's attention recently with jay leno having his accident he got burned in a gasoline fire at his classic car garage he was treated at the Grossman Burn Center in Sherman Oaks, yeah. which is one of the original supporters of the Children's Burn Foundation. Fortunately, Jay's having a fast and miraculous recovery. We're thankful for that. But for children, recovery can be a prolonged, painful, and expensive experience. Without access to comprehensive care, that child and their family will suffer devastating physical, financial, and emotional harm. They have access to full help and resources through the Children's Burn Foundation. We also offer burn prevention and education for both kids and parents. These are kids from all over the world, including young burn victims from the Ukraine. And this time of year, we like to ensure that Children's burn survivors are able to escape the stress of their surgeries and their treatments and find happiness and normalcy. Every year, 500 child burn survivors and their families gather for festivities, including food and drinks and toys and dinner and uh, donations by generous donors. If you'd like to donate, please, you won't find a more worthy group of dedicated human beings and uh, Children's Burn Foundation. Go to childburn.org. You can learn all about their heroic work and hopefully hit the Donate Now button, and we thank you. 
And here come your closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPath Podcast, and our Facebook group is called MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediaPath Podcast. You can write to us at MediaPathPodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating and a review in Apple Podcasts using words, for instance, like magnificent and groundbreaking. And talk about us <laughs> and talk about us on social media if you would so kindly do that. You can sign up for our fun and dishy newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. We want to thank our wonderful guests, John Mills and Bruce Belland. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Garrett Arch, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker, here with Fritz Coleman, Bruce Belland, and John Mills. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. Yeah, Bruce, you were almost too good at this. But we enjoy being on your show. <laughs> oh, so. my wife's going to give me such static. I can, yeah.